Welcome to the Combat Intelligent Athlete Show, where we talk and punch our way through achieving peak performance on the mat, surviving the street, and how to take on the martial arts of everyday life and win. And now, here is your host, Coach Rodney King. Hey, Richard. How's it going? Good, thank you, mate. I'm a bit disappointed there's no picture. I went and got a pedicure and everything ready for this. (laughs) What a waste. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, man, but next time. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. So, uh, how how things been? Oh, it looked pretty good. I I had a a four-hour seminar yesterday for actually a a Goju school, Goju Roop, that... um, Used to be under Tina Seberano, who was my first, you know, karate instructor. Went and did a seminar for them, which was all a bit fun. Look, I've just been, as I've said, my shoulders are just a bit shit, and I, I had fat stems done on last Sunday, but but that can take a few months to even have an effect. So I'm, you know, it's just trying to, you know, so much of what we do involves, of course, using so much of the shoulders. So you just gotta, you gotta do it regardless. It's just annoying. Yeah, and you, you had that done before, right? I mean, did did it do anything the first time around? No, actually, you know, what what I did was uh, after I finished shooting in uh, Hawaii and Mammoth on the um, Ben Affleck movie, I had I had lower back surgery just because of grappling and all that crap, you know, no big deal. But the, the back surgeon, who's also a neurosurgeon, recommended his partner who does um, bone marrow stem cells – and he says he's just fantastic. Mel Gibson sees him. Charlie Sheen sees him. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good rap. And I had a, I had a meeting with him, and I felt pretty good about it. He, he, he assured me it would. I had MRIs and all this sort of stuff done because pretty much bone on bone on my right shoulder. And it's not due to bad training. It's due to all the falls I had doing the Hong Kong movie. I'd stripped all the cartilage off the bone. Didn't realize at the time how much damage I was doing, but so now that there's a big, you know, it's quite a lot of arthritis in there, which of course is expected after all this time. Um, but he he also suggested while I'm under general anaesthetic that he would r- basically force my arm through all the different ranges of motion to break up all the scar tissue, which he did, and he said it was all this snapping and all sorts of bit. And I it seemed like it made sense at the time, but like deep. Tissue massage is supposed to get in there and break up scar tissue because of the lack of elasticity. But the post result is it was actually much worse than before I had it. I tend to think it's because of, of that process, not so much the stems. I had a couple of doctors say, no, we would never do that because it, it just traumatized my shoulder, especially being unconscious and not being able to give any sort of feedback as far as my body's concerned. And, um, I just think it did some damage, mate. So I just thought another doctor in L.A. had said, no, you don't need um, bone marrow stems that's fat. You know, they take it from your fat. The stem cells are much, much more effective for an injury like a rotator cuff. So, look, I just gave it a try last week, and, you know, it's going to take a few months. It's a longer process rather than the blood stems to get a result and, We'll just see what happens. I'd, I'd be interested to know if it if it works out, you know, because obviously, I mean, I've read about it as well. It is something that's coming up, and so it'd be interesting to get your feedback to see if it actually makes any difference. Yeah, look, I've had different people, especially knees. There's certain things that it, they, they seem to get a really good result, high percentage result out of knees and certain injuries. The rotator is a little more complex. It's such a complex joint. Um, but I will let you know it's going to take a little while. And, and, of course, the problem we have, which you would have too, is I can't rest the thing that much, you know. Uh, you know, I've got to kind of make a living and still got these seminars, and you always tell yourself you're going to just go slow, but you never do because, in a sense, we're kind of putting on a show as well, you know. It's trying to show them this is the rate at which I want you to do it. I'm talking about stand, not so much grappling. That's easier for me because I can go – very softly and slowly but when you're doing striking as you would well know it's you kind of i feel a bit of our job is to inspire them a bit too you know and and demonstrate with a bit of velocity and all that sort of stuff so of course i end up 
overdoing it. Sure. Nothing to do with ego there, Rodney. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it sound, sounds familiar, right? Sounds familiar. So, so yeah, here's the thing, eh, Richard. So people listening to this, you know, they might know who you are. They might not know who you are. Um, and I know that, you know, if I said to you, give me kind of a historical account of your martial arts, we'd probably be here uh, for the entire podcast. So maybe you have like the Cliff Notes version of this, you know, just kind of like a brief kind of, you know, foray into your martial arts experience. Because, I mean, when did, when did you start martial arts? I started when I was 11. And that, what was that year? Do you remember? Uh, that would have been 1961. Okay, so 1961, right? And so I'm 45 this year. I was only born in 1973. So, I mean, Just you were well into it before I even emerged on this planet. I mean that's just, that just freaks me out thinking about that how long you've actually been doing it. So what did you what did you actually start with? Back, I mean again you know the world has changed and we'll talk about that but I mean back then it must have been you know not a whole lot of options available if you wanted to go train martial arts back in you know the 60s. No and and that's you and especially back here in Australia. Um, look, I started judo because, as you just said, literally judo is about the only martial art around. I, you know, this is aside from, of course, the obvious with boxing and, you know, that arts like that, but we never kind of threw in the martial arts buck, buckets per se. But I, I literally remember reading about judo on the back of comic books, you know, and, and I remember it's the, you know, defeat five people with one finger, all this sort of business, which of course you find out is <laughs> far from the truth, but judo was really it. And, and, uh, it was really due to a, um, a friend of mine that went, lived opposite me, he moved into a house opposite to where I lived in Croydon, which is a suburb of Melbourne. He was disappearing twice a night. We would play around together after school, and I, I happened to say, Morris, where, where, what's going on? Where are you off to? Why can't we go and play pool or something on Tuesday night? And he said he's going to judo classes. And I remember going, oh, wow, I, I want to go. So that's how it started. I went along. His dad used to drive us to the class, and there was a, a police sergeant that was teaching a class, and that was my foray into martial arts. So I started judo and um, loved it, except for the fact that, as an 11-year-old, I was so skinny and small for my age that I remember being a bit like those comic book characters getting thrown from one end of the dojo to the other by the kind of slightly older, higher-ranked judo players there. But I still loved the idea of it, and that started my journey. In a nutshell, there was another friend of ours that was uh, going to judo that I went to school with who mentioned that there was a karate school opening up near to where we lived and he had been already learning out of Masayama's book I mean he'd do little you know as we would call them now party tricks where he'd kind of break a board and things like that and he was literally learning out of a book and of course for me that was like oh wow what is this so the karate school you know was having a demonstration a few miles from where I lived I went along they just did a very simple H pattern kata and a little bit of sparring jukumite we used to call it and this was uh, the gentleman was Tino Severano, who was a Hawaiian Filipino. He'd only been out in the country like six months. And again, I looked at that and I went, oh, my God, this is what I want to do, because I immediately saw it as more of a standoff kind of combat system that didn't involve so much strength and everything else. It was more agility and speed. And uh, that that's where I went. So I was with Tino for quite a number of years and. I ended up leaving with Bob Jones, and you probably know I'm involved with Zendokai, which is a kind of an eclectic Australian system, you would want to call it, but it was still very much based in the Goju system with our kata and forms and everything else. So we started that, uh, Zendokai, in 1970. It was later in the 70s that Bob went to America and ended up bringing Chuck Norris out to Australia. So Chuck came out in 78 and uh, I was doing a demonstration on tournaments we were holding where Chuck would demonstrate and I would demonstrate and I was using different Okanagan weapons. Chuck and I got on like a house on fire. He said to me, if you get to California anytime, look me up, we'll do some training, which for a little kid, you know, stuck in Melbourne, Australia was like, oh, wow, how cool is that? 
79, I ended up going to the States working as personal bodyguard to uh, Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor. And the first person when I got to California I called was Chuck. And we started training every morning at his house. It's through that that I met Benny the Jet Urquidez, kickboxing legend, Bill Wallace, uh, Fumio Demura. It was like a melting pot in California back then for me. And I started training with all these different martial artists. And my martial arts career just sort of blossomed from there. Uh, it was Benny that introduced me, obviously, to uh, kickboxing, a very much an American style of kickboxing, Ukido Khan, he called it. And uh, off I went. And then in the late 80s, I was introduced to uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, met the Machados, and been with them for 30-plus years. So... My career started in judo, went to karate, went to kickboxing, different Japanese weapons forms, and um, that's where I still am today. So I started very much in a in a traditional system, and I guess now I'm in much more of a hands-on, non-theoretical kind of uh, involvement in training. I mean, that's that's just an amazing story. But there's also another story there, right? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you were literally – I mean, we could say one of the first people um, or notable, you know, martial artists to actually kind of see jiu-jitsu for what it was, saw the importance of it. And if I remember correctly, you were the reason Chuck Norris even heard about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Is that correct? Yes, 100%. Now, here's the deal, just so everybody understands, because I, I like to sort of make sure people understand history. If there was anybody to to kind of thank for the explosion of jiu-jitsu in America, I would have to say it's Chuck. Now, the reason being that he went to for a holiday into uh, to Brazil. And, of course, like any martial artist, was running, asking people, oh, what do people do here? What's a good martial arts school? He ended up in a, in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school with Helio Gracie, Hickson Gracie, Hoist Gracie, to name a few. So you can imagine, had a conversation, had a little role with Helio Gracie, actually got choked. He said his throat was sore for three days. But that was his intro, and, he, and I'm cutting this short. He came back to America with the, one of the first videos that a lot of people saw, and that was of Hickson Gracie in his very early Valley Tudo matches. So he came back to the States and showed me, and I remember bringing it back to Australia and, and showing a few people here in Australia because we, we were looking and going, oh, wow, what is this? This is, this is amazing. This is different. Anyway, through through whatever circumstances, I ended up meeting Henzo Gracie, and I had gone back to Los Angeles and found Horion Gracie uh, because I was interested, what is this Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, as it was pretty much known as then as it is today. I found Horion, who was living out in Redondo Beach, and uh, this is before they even had a school. It was just a garage. And I remember ringing him up and saying, you know, would I be able to come and try a private lesson? So I turn up at Horion's house. Uh, again, this is in the late 80s. And the person I get introduced to for the private is uh, Hickson Gracie, as we know, a legend of the Gracie family. And uh, and Hoist was there. So I'm I'm out there and they, they'd already known I had a stand-up background, albeit not that I am a was a world champion kickboxer or anything like that, but I'd had quite extensive experience of stand-up. And the first thing Hickson says to me was, oh, my friend, you want to put the gloves on? Because that's when, you know, they were kind of going around and challenging different martial arts schools to kind of show the the efficacy of, of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, I'm just very interested in what you guys do. So my very first lesson was Hoist got on his back and I had to get in the mount position, which is, for those who don't know, is just basically sitting on his stomach while he's on the ground on his back. And I had to try and stay there. And then I got on my back and Hoist got on me and I had to try and get him off. Well, both those, of course, were impossible feats for me, for me to achieve. And and I do remember clear as mud walking away that night going, wow, I, I just felt like a little baby on the ground with these guys. And I thought, imagine how good I could be if I can add this to what I do. And the key word being add, not instead of, because we weren't striking or anything when we did this first session. 
But I, you know, it's, I was smart enough to go, oh man, I, I have no idea what they were doing there. And I thought I would be so much more uh, a better martial artist to add this to my game. So I started training at uh, Horian's house with Hickson. I did months and months and months of private lessons with Hickson. And Chuck, Chuck, by the way, after his trip, it ended up bringing a bunch of them out to be at the UFAC convention. He's United Fighting Arts Federation, which is which is all the schools that he had around America. Some in Europe would come for an annual convention, and he brought a whole bunch of Brazilians out. Being you know Hickson and Pedro Sawyer and Horion Gracie, one of those people was Carlos Gracie uh, Machado. I'm sorry, but but it was just sort of a group session which they did for one or two years or whatever. Anyway, it's through Henzo Gracie asking me, he said, oh, you know, I met him here in Australia. He said, who are you training with? And I said, oh, I'm training with uh, Hickson over at Horion's house. He said, oh, you need to meet my cousins, the Machados. So I said, oh, great. So Henzo was going back to, through L.A. and I was. He ended up introducing me to um, to Higgin Machado, John and uh, Carlos, I don't think, I can't remember whether Roger was there, but John Jacques was definitely not in the country even yet. So they were also all in one house out in Redondo Beach or Torrance, you know, area. And I went out and started training with them. This is when early great jiu-jitsu players like Bob Bass and, you know, Chris Howder and people like that were starting off. So that was my introduction to the Machados. I then said to Chuck, because I was training with Chuck every day at his house. We were very, very close friends. And I said, Chuck, you've got to to meet these guys, the Machados. And he said, oh, wow. And I said, it's just amazing. He said, well, let's set up and bring them around to the house. Let's set up a private lesson. And, you know, he was out in uh, Tarzana at that stage in Los Angeles. I said, great. And he said, I'll bring them out. We'll do two hours. I said, no, you don't want to do two hours, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I ended up bringing Hegan out and Carlos, and we had a group session, and that was the start of the relationship of Chuck Norris with the Machados. As I said, Carlos was one of those bunch of about nine people that came out earlier for the UFAP, but there was no real association with them. So that was the relationship, and through that, Bob Wall was training with us in the mornings. So through Bob Wall, Chuck, and myself, we were the ones that ended up starting them off in their very first academy in Los Angeles, um, and the rest is history. So, yes, I absolutely introduced to the Machados, but Chuck is really the one that shone the light on the very existence of jiu-jitsu and again, even Hegan had been out in the country a little earlier than that, but nobody really knew about him or anybody else. So Chuck, because of his, his profile and everything, is, is again the person that really said, oh, wow, what is this? And exposed it to a greater martial arts community. So that was how it all, uh, all went off. And in, in, in Australia, the very first introduction here was me bringing the tape of Hickson Grace in his Valley Tudor matches showing another friend of mine who you know. Um, and that's how he first even even knew that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu existed. So uh, off we went. And I'm still, as you well know, also we're still with the Machados 30-plus years later. And uh, Chuck ended up bringing – or Carlos Machado ended up moving to Dallas while Chuck was doing the Texas Rangers series in Dallas. And uh, so it's it's been a friendship and association that's lasted a long time. That's 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 amazing. So my question is, you know, because obviously you had all those early experiences with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, you had a lot of opportunity to train with different people. What was the thing about the Machados that really stood out for you? Like, what made them different, and one of the reasons why you know you've stayed with them for so long? Um, look, there's a number of things. One, not, one is an obvious one. It just sounds like a bit of a cliche, but one was the obvious passion they had for the art. Number two was there was no denying how unbelievable they were. For anyone, again, who doesn't know, there's five brothers, and uh, the five brothers have all got their individual styles. Even they they grew up together training under Carlos Gracie Jr. and different ones, and uh, they all had such individual styles, but uh, uh, the thing that stands out most to me, uh, Rodney, is their, their caring. But I also have to say that started with me with Hickson. Like, I still remember how caring Hickson was. He was very gentle, very soft, you know, with the way he taught and the way he, he 
taught Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But, but the same thing applied with the Machados. You know, they were so nice and friendly and just lovely people aside from being amazing at what they did. And it was just a never-ending feeling that they were willing to give every aspect of their art to me as a student, providing I had the, the aspirations to learn and get better and the inclination to learn, they were there. I mean, whether it's private lessons or time spent after class, the caring of for me as a student of jiu-jitsu was what – it wasn't about money. It wasn't about the commerciality, I guess is what I'm saying. I just felt that they were so eager to pass on their knowledge to someone like myself as another martial artist, and that was the attraction. And the final thing is, and I still say it to this day – Having rolled, as we would say, or grappled or wrestled with so many of them, especially Jean-Jacques, they've never hurt me once in the thousands of times we would have rolled. And you have to think about that. That's that's really quite something. In an ego-based arena like we exist in with martial arts, with certain instructors and everything feeling compelled to show their superiority to you, the fact that they've never, ever hurt me once and yet had 100% control over every aspect of every role we've ever had is, to me, quite mind-blowing. I mean, you think about it. If you boxed five years and somebody else had boxed 20 years, maybe maybe they'll do better, but you're still going to hit them. You know what I mean? There's going to be an exchange. But the fact that I've never come close to even tapping one of them out after 20 years, 25 years and everything is kind of – it's remarkable to me, and that's also what makes jiu-jitsu exciting, the fact that after after all this time, I could get on the mat, and you know very well with Master Higgin Machado, and to think there's not a damn thing I can do with him. First of all, I could get a little depressed and go, well, what the fuck, you know, after all this time. But the flip side for me is it's just exciting because I go, how much further – can I really go in this game? And that excites the daylights out of me, the fact that there is still so much to learn uh, within this particular art. And, I, and I've always said jiu-jitsu is probably the most complicated martial art I've ever, I've ever tried to learn. I mean, that's been my experience too, right? I mean, that, that's where we share a commonality in, in so far as our history. I, I brought, uh, you know, Master Higgin Machado to South Africa in 1997. This was the first time a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt had ever come to South Africa. And I remember that experience vividly. I mean, I remember actually I had a, a mat in my garage and Higgin was rolling with me. You know, I think he was here for a, close on two weeks, you know, just enjoying South Africa and obviously teaching. And he had no problem getting on the mat with me in my garage. And my, you know, what I remember of that was exactly as you, you know, expressed, right? It was the utter frustration was unbelievable. I couldn't do anything. And I was absolutely amazed <laughs> by the fact of what he could do without even trying. And in all the times that I've, you know, I've trained with Higgin and rolled with Higgin, exactly the same experience. I've never once walked away from that injured. He's always been able to completely annihilate me with a smile on his face. And it, it just, it just, it's amazing. But the, one of the main things that attracted me to his approach and one of the reasons why I'm still with you know, Master Higgin Machado is that he always kind of expressed this kind of simple, I wouldn't say it's simplistic, but a simple way to approach jiu-jitsu, an uncomplicated way. And that just kind of really spoke to me as a student because the fact of the matter is, as you noted, I mean, jiu-jitsu is so complex. And so when you're trying to understand it, when he kind of approaches it from this simple approach it makes it so much easier to get it down, right? I mean, as best as you can until you actually roll against somebody like him and you realize how little you actually know. Yeah, look, and and he's, you know, as you know, he's still about that today. I mean, his, his game, you would still have to say, is quite fundamental, you know, in, in his execution. But the problem, I think, problem, listen to me, you know, what do I know? But... Let me just say that the, the, the many directions Jiu-Jitsu has taken, especially since its introduction into America, you know, with Worm Guard and Half Guard and Deep Half and 50-50 and all the rest of it and Berimbolos, that's all very well, you know, but 
what Higgins shows to me, and and I've got to say, even still, as you know, Hicks and Gracie's expression to jiu-jitsu is it's still about the fundamentals, it's about the simplicity of the game, and it's certainly not about how many techniques you know. It doesn't matter. You can call a technique basic, but it just gets down to how well do you do it. Like Higgin, and he'll say it in a very uh, non-kind of bragging or no there's no bragging about it, but he just basically says, my friend, if I pass your guard, I will tap you out. And it's the way he will pass the guard. There's there's no doing hand flips and hanging off the rafters and doing some amazing guard pass. Often it will be the, one of the first guard passes you ever learn. So the lesson in that is, again, it's not how many guard passes do you know and how fundamental are they, but how well do you do it? And that's what I see in someone at Higgins' game which to me then makes it very doable, like you said, for a vast number of people because I can't turn upside down like a Keenan Cornelius and people like this do, but the great thing is you don't need to. There are so many games, as we would call it, in jiu-jitsu that you can find a game that will absolutely suit your size, weight, even age, and still make you a very relevant and effective martial artist, and I think that's fantastic, and the Machados are great at that. I mean, I remember John Jacques saying in a class, he said, 90% of what I teach, I would never do. But the, the, the value of them as a coach is understanding just because they don't do it doesn't mean that student A, B or C would not find an incredible game out of the variety of techniques they're able to offer up as coaches and allow the individual student to basically develop their own art, their own kind of game within the jiu-jitsu sort of parameters. And I think that's fantastic. And I think that shows the level of expertise someone like a Higgin or a Jean-Jacques has in the game, you know, allowing you to find your direction, your game, your expression of jiu-jitsu, not just copying what they do so well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's incredibly important. I, I like that. I like that point. I think there's something else there, and, and just I would like to kind of you know pick your brains on this. You kind of hear this a lot these days. They'll say, oh, you know, th- that's old school jujitsu, right? And what they're really referring to is what we've been talking about. You know, that kind of I guess the game that it used to be back in say the the you know the 90s, what everybody was exposed to, um, and now all of a sudden you have this very kind of attribute driven jiu-jitsu game which is very much you know as a expression of the competitive realm but when i think about this idea of old school jiu-jitsu i think about it in the sense that it's not really old school you need to put it into context you need to have a perspective on this i would suggest that what is considered as old school really is a approach to jiu-jitsu that is more geared towards self-preservation and the reason why they would do certain things back then was because it was done against somebody else who would be fighting back. And specifically, that person would be striking at you. Hence, you would then change the way that you did your jiu-jitsu because you would have to be dealing with somebody who's not just only grappling, but is also putting in strikes as they're trying to achieve a certain outcome. Right? So would you, would you agree with that? Would you, do you kind of see it in the same way? Oh, 100%, Rodney, because there's really two schools. I mean, what you're talking about is the, is the Hicks and Grace expression of jiu-jitsu, which was about the combatives, you know, it was about survival in the street, you know, against a untrained or whatever street person, as opposed to jiu-jitsu that applies on the sports arena. You know, you have your sport aspect because I did a class with uh, a few classes with Hicks and oh, some years back and, I remember him, he had quite a few black belts on the mat, and I remember him pointing out, he said, he said, Rich, I've got some of these, a couple of these guys have won championships and everything, and he said they couldn't even get out of a standing headlock, meaning their their emphasis was on the sport, it was about the game, it's about the points, not saying that they're not amazing, don't get me wrong, and it certainly doesn't mean they can't effectively apply jiu-jitsu in a real-life situation. But the emphasis is on the sport. It's about the clock. It's about the time. It's about, you know, certain aspects that lead you to become a winner that have very little to do with actual combat. Um, so Hickson was all about, you know, well, yes, everything is about somebody trying to punch you. And anybody that's grappled in very much the 
rules of, of jujitsu in the academy that adds somebody with a couple of light gloves on is trying to punch you in the head at the same time. I and mean, if you don't understand immediately how radically that changes your game, how you escape positions and everything else, then there's something wrong with you. So I just think there's two schools now. There's a competitive aspect, which is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But there definitely is the combative aspect. I, I'm actually a very much a fan of, of Hannah Gracie's attitude with Gracie University. You know, I spent some time with Hannah and I, I really love him. I think he's such a smart, smart person. And to get blue belt with, you know, with them, you get blue belt in jiu-jitsu, but you can't get blue belt without also having got ranked or a blue belt level in Gracie combatives, which involves all the grabs, headlocks on the ground, bear hugs, how to clinch somebody if they're trying to punch you in the head. And I thought, how good is that? Because by the time you get the blue, yes, you've got a certain fundamental understanding of the sport of jiu-jitsu, but you've certainly covered most of the fundamental combative aspects. From then on in, you then learn the rest of the art, sport, whatever you want to call it, of jiu-jitsu, which, to be honest, has very little to do with real combat. It's it's the game. It's the sport. Because, Rodney, you worked on doors. I did bodyguard work for 25 years. You and I both know the last place we want to be is stuck on the ground tied up with somebody. And unless you're in the middle of a football field and you know nobody else is around and you're a better grappler than person, that's not where I want to be because it's not about one-on-one. It's about two-on-one, three-on-one, four-on-one. And I can be on the ground choking the crap out of this particular person and their girlfriend can be stomping the back of my head in with a – with a stiletto shoe or whatever. So it's a separate sort of thing that needs to be addressed. And, you know, I, I like that expression of the fundamentals, meaning you, you need to sort of – the original idea was always about the street for the Brazilians, you know, street fights, fights on the beach, everything else. How do I effectively survive against, you know, the, the street person – and again, it's a totally separate issue for being in the confines of a mat, which is what I call consensual sparring, you know, which gets us into another area. And it's no different with karate, with boxing, with wrestling. It's all consensual because, you know, when you're on there, there's rules. You know, you're going to fight that person. He's going to fight you. The referee's not going to jump in and try and smack you in the back of the head, one would hope. So it's a whole different mindset where we get into that. So again, getting back that I like the fundamentals of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, learn at least to be okay with the average sort of street person and then get on and learn the rest of jiu-jitsu. Like Hannah would say to me, he said, look, some of my blue belts, they went to a sport jiu-jitsu competition school. Yeah, maybe they'd be a little bit behind, not so much behind. He'd probably kill me if he heard me saying that. But he said, that's okay. But by the time they get the purple and brown, it's all equaled out because then they've caught up. They've learned the rest of the art. The difference is that his students will be able to get out of a bear hug or whatever it is, a headlock, et cetera, et cetera, and, and be okay with, with the street aspect. And I think that's an incredible plus. And I think a lot of modern jiu-jitsu schools, schools are missing out on the asset of that part of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, that's one of the things I really try to emphasize when I'm teaching, that I try to give at least as much attention to the self-preservation aspect as I would, for example, just the, the role. And I think that's super important, right, as the example that you used, is that, you know, if you're in a street situation, you're more than likely not going to be dealing with one person. And so knowing how to get off the ground, if you did get taken down or you fell over, whatever that, you know, however it ended up, is super important to your safety. It's kind of interesting that you say that because I taught a seminar this year and there was, there were some high ranking people in the seminar from other jiu-jitsu backgrounds and they've come from other academies and not one of them knew how to get back to their feet safely. But I remember a day where that was just a standard lesson that you would learn, like right from the beginning, you would learn, you know, how to move from a closed guard, which I would argue that the reason why you have a closed guard is so that you can deal with somebody trying to strike you so you can lock them down. And then moving from that position to the stand-up 
position so that you could get back to your feet. I mean, I remember that as one of the first lessons that I learned. And now you can go to jiu-jitsu academies and that never gets taught anymore. hundred percent. Couldn't agree more because, you know, when I started jiu-jitsu, a lot of my stand-up friends would say, oh, well, we don't go to the ground. You know, we just, I said, well, that's all very well. But what if you did? What if you're now on your back? You don't have the levers in order to strike effectively and everything. Are you able to survive and get back on your feet? And that's the issue. You know, I have a friend, Sam Greco, who's was a K1 world champion, MMA fighter, just a moose. Sam's like 240 pounds, you know, a Kyoka Shin world champion. And I, I would say to people, look, I've trained with Sammy. I said, let me tell you, if Sammy gets his hands on you and decides you're going to the ground, guess what? You're going to the ground, whether you like it or not. The question now is, can you survive? And as we said, get back on your feet. That's not taught because none of that applies in sport jiu-jitsu. It's only in the street. And, and you know, as you said, that we would loosely call it a tactical get-up. Even just how to get to your feet is just not taught, let alone, as I said, all the standing clinching stuff. You know, if somebody's striking and getting a basic clinch, dropping on their back. The great news about all that for me is all of that doesn't really take that long. It's not like you're going to spend years on it. You know, you spend a reasonable amount of time and you've covered most clinches standing up. I'm not talking again about a, a fighting a, an amateur wrestling champion or whatever. I mean, let's be real about this. But against the average mugger in the street, it doesn't take that long to cover a certain amount of the high percentage possibilities of close quarters contact in the street. And I think it, it, it behooves us to sort of give that to a student that joins up for jiu-jitsu. I just I do not believe that most people who start a jiu-jitsu class join up because they want to become a jiu-jitsu champion. That's like any martial art. They're probably lacking a bit of confidence. They want some self-defense skills, some combat skills to feel better and more safe. And most of the time they do not get that in return. Easily enough, we can just give it to them in a short amount of time and then they will carry on and learn the art sport or whatever of, of jiu-jitsu. So I think it's just very easy, fixable. Like the finish, I, I remember Hicks on talking about Cron Gracie, who's just amazing. He said, you watch my son Cron. Look how basic he is with his game. There's nothing flamboyant about Cron Gracie's game and yet he can beat and has beaten the best in the world. So once again, it gets bound to not how basic or fundamental is it, but how well do you do it? I, I, to, uh, there's a great story, everybody, um, Big John McCarthy, you know, who's a UFC referee for years and years and years, who's a moose. John is so strong. He's a black belt under the Machados. And I remember asking, because uh, he trained with Randy Couture, of course, all the people that he would referee and got friends with, and I happened to say to Big John, I said, who's the most impressive person you've wrestled with? And ironically, he said, Hickson. I said, really? I said, why? He said, well, he started to pass my guard. And he, and again, it gets back to even he said, you, you think Hickson Gracie's the legend. He's going to do five cartwheels, bounce off the roof and land, you know, in a north-south position. He said, no, he passed me with one of the most basic guard passes you could come up with, something you would learn probably in your first three months of training, and he said, I couldn't move. I, I, he did not give me an inch. He just moved past my garden. There was nothing I could do about it. Hence, again, my emphasis on not how basic it is, how well do you do it? And uh, I think there's a big lesson in that. Yeah, I like that. So switching gears, thinking about the other side, right? Because obviously you had done, I mean, you have done just so many years of the stand-up and you've worked your striking game. How would you say jiu-jitsu changed the way that you approach striking? I think uh, I don't – uh, I guess what I added in was the aspects of how striking could lead me into close quarters, i.e. to a single leg, double leg, or whatever, should I need to. But more importantly, it was learning the tools of a grappler. I mean – Again, to people who have never experienced an amateur wrestling, how fast they can get from A to B and grab hold of your legs, whether it be both or a single for a double or single leg and put you in your back. I mean, they're missing something. I mean, this is what these guys do. So one of the important things of, of now having a grappling game or grappling world exposed to me was, for me as a striker, is how 
and what to be aware of should a striker suddenly change his levels and you realize, ah, this is this person is also a grappler and how do I defend that? Because as you know, it's all very well to, to strike and everything else, but this is what the UFC showed. Every All the stand-up guys thought they couldn't be taken down, and yet they did, as per Hoist Gracie. That's what changed the whole martial art world and brought into the whole mixed martial arts aspect of our our environment was the, the fact that an amateur will absolutely take you off your feet almost at will, you yeah. know? So for me, it was just understanding the tools of a grappler and thereby, well, how can I best defend about against that? You know, of course, understanding that often you would end up in your back, hence you need the ground game to be able to get back with that. So that was the main aspect. And, and also how to use my strikes to enter into close quarters to allow me to then use my newly learned sort of grappling abilities. I mean, that was that's kind of like a similar experience that I had, right? So I think it, if I remember correctly, I might be a little bit off on the date, but I think it was around about 1996. Um, a, a guy came out who I'm still friends with, Steve Boyd, came out from the US. He was in South Africa. At that time, he was a blue belt under Hickson. And obviously, I'd seen, you know, the first – UFCs and you know Hoist Gracie doing his thing in 1993 so I was aware of jiu-jitsu I was playing around with some of the ideas but I wasn't convinced right because I was predominantly a, a, a striker stand-up um, you know basically exponent of the arts and my attitude to Steve was man you know what yeah you know I could see the relevance of jiu-jitsu but I don't think it's actually going to work against a really good striker and his attitude was okay cool man you know so let's do it this way you can strike me do whatever you want to do all I'm going to do is I'm going to come in I'm going to take you down and I'm going to choke you out and it was kind of a joke right I mean he didn't do it in a mean way but I remember you know at my academy trying to like really strike this guy out and every single time without fail he got in took me down put me on the floor and choked me out and that was just a light bulb moment for me because I realized in that moment in time obviously on the one side I absolutely needed to learn this thing you know called Brazilian jiu-jitsu but like you said it started making me aware of a part of the game that for a long time wasn't really seen as a martial art right i mean you know although judo had been around and stuff like that but still even judo was seen kind of more sport i guess but nobody really considered it a martial art same as boxing i mean you know boxing was a sport it wasn't really a martial art we know now that that's completely untrue um, and of course it is but you know that was my realization as well you know you really need to understand the grappling game right in order to deal with it yeah wrestle we never figured wrestlers in that martial arts kind of field i mean wrestlers they're not martial artists well god i mean you know as again the ufc just shows the effectiveness of a good grappler of a good wrestler and uh <laughs> look it's it's uh it's an eye opener once again and a lot of people it's kind of like you said you look at two people on the ground grappling and it's very hard to understand the effectiveness and the game of what's going on. You need to actually experience to be made a believer. That's why I get back to the best thing they could ever have done is have me try and sit on hoist and him sit on me and me try and get him off. And that, that the proof was totally in the pudding. I, there's no way I could go away from that and theorize about anything. I mean, the practical proof was there. Thank God I was smart enough to accept that and not try and rationalize, well, I could have struck him in the head, and what if I'd done that, which is the typical argument. But, I, again, thankfully I was smart enough that I, I needed to add this to my game, and that's what it was. And it's like I had a friend, there's a little bit of a different example when you talk about that sort of stuff. He, I was working on Spider-Man movie in L.A. quite some years back, and one of the stunt guys was a very good kickboxer, and he did some sparring with St. Pierre, who was a UFC legend. And he said, they did some kickboxing. He said, you know what, Richie said, I, I thought in kickboxing, he said, yeah, I could probably, you know, would basically be able to beat George St. Pierre. He said, so they did three rounds. He said, the second three rounds, they added takedowns. He said, 17 out of 17 times, St. Pierre took him down. It wasn't 16 out of 17. It was 17 out of 17. Bam, down on his back, and that was an eye-opener for him because he knew he could beat him with, with the striking and everything else. So that that's the beauty of adding this to your art because George is like, oh, you're a better striker than me. Let's see how you do on your back. And again, 
the effectiveness of the grappler in that sort of environment, being able to change the environment by putting the striker on his back is kind of what the UFC was all about and what it proved, you know, hence the evolution of the game. And even the jiu-jitsu guys would say that the worst person for a jiu-jitsu fighter to fight or face is a wrestler who can punch. Because it's hard to take them down because that's what they've done all the lives. is avoid double and single leg takedowns. If they can, so if you can't take them down and put them into your game and they know how to punch, you're now in big trouble. <laughs> I thought that was a great sort of comparison too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to, yeah, yeah one of the things I wanted to talk about too is, uh, you know, it's kind of changing a little bit of, of where we've been moving in the conversation, but kind of going back to when you started in the martial arts and, you know, one of the things that was very evident to me as I started was the philosophical you know, aspect of training in the martial arts. The idea of using martial arts as a vehicle to become a champion in life. Would you say that that's still the same or has that changed somewhat over the years that you've been involved? Is that something that we, we should you know, still be thinking about? Um, you know, um, should, we, should we be making sure that we implement that into our training? Because what I notice a lot of times is that you got kind of two spheres, right? You've got the hyper-competitive guys and all they really care about is competition and that's their, their main focus. And then, of course, you've got the reality-based self-defense guys and all they care about is the street. But almost like the aspect of the philosophy, if we could call it the, the art within the martial, has somewhat been diminished in favor of functionality. You know, functionality as the first thing and, you know, if anything else comes with it, well, that's great. But in the old days, I would argue that you know, of course, there was that aspect of, of wanting to, to be able to achieve success in, in your martial game, but there was an equal, if not more, emphasis on how does this actually, you know, Im impose itself in your everyday life? Does it actually make you a better person? Uh, look, I, for me, no question. I mean, I, you know, as I said, like my, my martial arts experience now is more based on the hands-on aspect, i.e., the kickboxing and the jiu-jitsu, as we've said, there's there's kind of no theory when you're on the mat rolling or you're in the ring. You're either getting punched or you're punching somebody or you're getting tapped out or tapping them out. In the early days, you know, and especially in hindsight, you realize, yes, there's a tremendous amount of theory. You do kata and you do the bunkai, which is the combat explanation of the moves within the kata and everything else. And some of it, you know, goodness me, you, you wouldn't a million years attempt to use that in the street. But I am so thankful that my introduction was to the arts in a time when it was about the art aspect as well as the martial. Because, and I, I still, you know, even in the jiu-jitsu today, I, you know, the, we know the Brazilian aspect is a little more casual. People don't lie out. They don't necessarily bow. Those, obviously, some schools do. But... I still insist on that. I still insist on the protocols that go with walking into what in Japanese terms we call the dojo. We would line up according to rank. As I'd say to people, rank rank is something that's earned. It's like the military. You know, you don't just get rank given to you. Earn that through a lot of blood, sweat and tears. So your position in the line should mean something and it should be respected. So you'd line up. The mere fact of coming, you know, into a particular position and bowing, it's not about the actual physical act of bowing, it's whether or not your personality will allow yourself to actually kind of humble yourself to another person, i.e. being it your instructor or another training partner. All of those things, the etiquette with ghost with being an all-rounded martial arts, I think are vital to the development of character. And even I would say to my adults, even if it's not something you particularly feel comfortable with it, it really is beside the point for me because if if the only reason we line up and you you are made or feel compelled to bow and show respect before and after a, a training session entering and leaving the dojo sparring match or whatever is think about all those young kids you know there's very few sports that involve that kind of protocol in, in football or anything else, yes, there's team work and all that, but the idea of that kind of respect being shown by an adult, I said, what greater example is there for that child to see you, especially if you're a respected and great fighter, actually showing that kind of respect to another human being, whether it be a friend or a stranger in the dojo, 
that's I think that's a fantastic example, and it allows that that younger student to be okay with that for themselves. You know, They're, that's just a tiny aspect, but I think it's it's just vital. And I, you know, my my the fact that I started in the Japanese sort of arts and everything led to me to to look into Zen, you know, and and Bushido as a as a code to live by. Um, I, I remember my first book, and it still is like my Bible in the martial arts, is Zen and Japanese Culture by D.T. Suzuki. And it was really about where the mind is as far as the swordsman, you know, the Bushido, samurai, warrior, et cetera, et cetera. And I just got so much out of that that had very little to do with the actual combat aspects of the art, but mind, where your mind was as a martial artist. I mean, the parallels I would draw, and I'm keeping it very simple, is you have the Western gunfighter, you know, who can draw and shoot as fast as anybody else and win a fight. But the difference with the samurai was also versed in Chanoyu, you know, the tea ceremony or, or Ikebana and poetry and everything else. In other words, there were very balancing aspects of the arts they were introduced to that helped to make them an overall gentleman of life, you know, to have those protocols that made them a very rounded person. Because I would often say to people, and I still say, it's not the two hours on the mat that's important, it's the 22 hours off the mat. How do you conduct yourself as a human being? How do you listen? How, what's your respect? What's your manners like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe a good traditional school can help impart so many of those valuable lessons, not just to an adult, but essentially to a to a younger person starting the arts. Um, and I miss that. I don't see that in a lot of schools, though there certainly are a lot of schools and dojos, academies, whatever you want to call them, that still adhere to that. And I thank God that those those schools exist. You know. Yeah. So I have a I have another theory also. It adds to what you've just noted about that idea of the, you know, the samurai learning all these soft skills, so to speak, right? You know, the tea ceremony and so forth that you mentioned. And I guess when you think about it, in, on the face of it, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's like, why would the elders of that society training the new up and coming samurai, you know, make these warriors spend all this time on these soft skills and they couldn't just be okay at it, right? They had to be a master of the tea ceremony. They had to be a master of theater. They had, they, they had to be as good as that at that as they were at sword fighting. And so the question would be like, why would you spend all this time if ultimately all this person is training to be is to go onto the battlefield and wage war. But I think the elders of that society realized early on that if you only focus on the marshal, the very person that you have put into a position to protect society becomes the very person that destroys it. And so they realized that what they had to do is they had to balance that warrior energy with the softer skills. So to find that balance, because if you go too much into the marshal, you go down what I call the red road, you get stuck in the red mist, and then it only becomes about violence, and you're willing to do the violence at any cost, and so you stop, you know, you, you, you no longer have that humility, you no longer have the character that you need in order to engage with the world, you no longer have that ability to say, there are times to utilize my martial skills, and there are times not to use it, and being able to distinguish that's very, very hard if all you've ever been taught to do is to destroy. Yes. Well, you know, it, it, there's a great, uh, uh, you probably know Benny the Jet. For those who don't know, Benny the Jet Urquidez is, you know, pretty much American kickboxing legend, you know, had an undefeated kickboxing record. But I love his, his way of putting it across is he would say to students, he said, well, you know, well, when we're teaching you like clinches and elbows and how to put somebody to sleep, you know, all these striking drills and techniques, he says, I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm giving you bits of plastic and bits of metal. And he says, I'm teaching you how to make a handgun. And he said, eventually, I'm teaching you how to put bullets in that handgun. And he says, at that stage, you're a very dangerous person. So without the oversight of that, of what you're talking about, the oversight of being a gentleman as an artist and as a martial artist, we're basically putting loose cannons out onto the street. So that's that's exactly his way of saying what you've just expressed, and I, I think it's so, so important. I remember even with Tino in the old days, if anyone got in, because there was a lot of 
rough and tough guys that started, you know, back in the 60s when we did. But as a student, if if the word got out that you'd got into a fight that was turned, you know, that was deemed an inappropriate use of the skills he was giving you, you would do the lineup. It was simply if there were 30 in a class, you would spar everybody in the class finishing off with him. And it was just a reminder of this is what physical violence and everything feels like and it was just a reminder that these skills are not to be misused and abused and to keep a complete mental and emotional control over the skill set that you're being taught Uh, and I think that was very responsible of him to do as a teacher. So it's interesting that you note that. I mean, my experience of that actually was in Western boxing. My boxing coach, Willie Tuwil, who was a bronze medalist in the Helsinki Olympics, he was very much like that. He would make a point all the time of saying, listen, if I catch you guys or I hear about you guys fighting out on the street, I'm going to show you what a beatdown really is going to be like, right? I'm going to get in the ring and I'm going to kick your ass basically, right? So I literally stopped fighting on the street for the most part, when I started boxing, my focus, you know, shifted to Western boxing. That's where my focus was. But I also had his words in the back of my head, you know, like, well, if I find out and I will find out, then, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. And that was really important because I needed that as a teenager, you know, as a way to kind of just, you know, anchor me and give me some direction, you know, because, you know, you could quite easily go off the, off the, off the, off the edge. Yeah, checks and balances, you know, (laughs) even if you're out and you think, oh, gee, you know, maybe there's a possibility of something happening. Gee, I hope Tina doesn't find out about it or I'm in trouble, you know. (laughs) It can be as simple as that. And I I think that oversight is a change. And I I know you did one of your blogs you did a while ago about martial and the art, I think, was just fantastic. And it's a great reminder and balance that we need to and should have and are obligated to have as martial artists. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I appreciate that. So we're coming up for the top of the hour. The one thing we haven't talked about, and maybe we could talk about that just briefly, is how you got involved in the movies because I didn't want to just focus on that, right? I mean, obviously, you know, most people who know you, and that's kind of how I know you too, is just you've been in pretty much some of the most amazing martial art movies that have ever been done. Um, So how did you get involved in that? Like how did you move into the movie industry? Well, the movies was, you know, being in the movies was never something I aspired to do. Uh, look, as I'd mentioned, 1973, Bob Jones, who's my partner in Zendikai, would, was already, you know, he's 10 years older than I am, and he was already running security in Melbourne. We got asked to look after the Rolling Stones in 1973 by a, an Australian entrepreneur, Paul Dainty. So that was the start of my bodyguard career and already been working doors around, I always say discos, but that really dates me when I call them discotheques. But anyway, they were and pubs. Got started working as a bodyguard in 73 with the Stones. We went on to work with Joe Cocker and Abra and Fleetwood Mac. So I went off to the States, as I'd already mentioned, with Chuck in 78, uh, in 79 rather. Started working, uh, training with him. And he, because he knew I could handle all the Japanese weapons, he asked me to be his main nemesis in a film called The Octagon, one of Chuck's very early movies. I remember that, that one. Involved injured people. And so I was like, wow, yeah, this is cool. So Chuck and myself and his brother Aaron, we rehearsed and choreographed all the fights in Chuck's backyard in Rolling Hills Estates, which is just, you know, out in Los Angeles. And so off I went. I ended up playing, you know, there was four of us did all the ninja work in Octagon, I, I, my claim to fame, in fact, is I died eight times in that movie. So there you go. But I was Keo, you know, who wore a crimson headdress, got to fight Chuck at the end of the movie. So that was my introduction. It really just came through Chuck asking me if I would do it. And uh, I, I just had a ball. I just met the most amazing martial artists on the set at that time, um, Simon and Philip Reed, Tadashi Yamashita and different ones. So off I went. I ended up doing a few more movies with Chuck. Got offered a lead in Force Five, which is in 1981. That was with Master Bong Suhan, Benny the Jet, Urquidez, and Joe Lewis. Since uh, passed away, but just another legend. So that was that was how it all started for me. So I must have done 60, 70 movies, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Now, of course, with my career, uh, I realized that if you know, at 68 years of age, I'm probably going to playing somebody's dad or an aging gangster 
because <laughs> that's the way it is in this industry. So I'm now working as a fight coordinator. And, uh, you know, we did Mad Max, X-Men, Suicide Squad, Ghost in the Shell, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's what I'm doing to this day. So it's been a phenomenal journey, but uh, that was a long-winded way of saying it's not something I aspired to do, but just happened to end up doing. But I loved it because it was just a through line using the skills I had gotten through my passion of just wanting to be the best martial artist I could be. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, so here's, my, here's my last question. What is your favorite Chuck Norris story? You know, the fa- uh, well, it's probably not what you would think. I mean, I've got a lot of funny stories with Chuck because we've, we've just had an incredible career um, of, of training together and training with people like Judo Gene LaBelle and those sorts of people. I can tell you fantastic stories about different training sessions and Gene showing us techniques. I remember Gene grabbing my wrist one day to show Bob Wall and Chuck some wrist locks and everything. And I tell you what, it was I. It, the problem was not that he was doing all the wrist locks for me, but that your whole body goes almost it it contorts. And I remember him doing these wrist locks in me. I'm going, oh, uh, uh, I'm trying to talk, and I remember he let me go. And I said, oh, sensei, I said, all I was trying to do is say, I think my wrist is breaking. It was the most ridiculous experience I've ever had. But one of the one of the up sort of stories I, I like to tell about Chuck is his his introduction into the career that he chose as a, as an actor. And he was one of his private students back back in the day was Steve McQueen, legendary actor, of course, from Bullet and all the great escape. Well, he was having dinner with Chuck and Chuck was saying that he'd recently just closed all his schools down because he was past his competition sort of stage of his career and everything and he's wondering what to do and he said Steve happened to say so Chuck what are you going to do with your life and Chuck says well I don't know I hadn't really thought about it and again I'm paraphrasing Steve apparently said well had you ever think about acting and Chuck said he just laughed he said oh Steve acting I mean how I'm not an actor blah 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 to which he ended up getting a lecture from Steve on Steve saying, now, all right, he said, for years you've been training us, telling us with martial arts you can achieve anything. You break boards as a way of overcoming obstacles, you know, representing different problems in your life. You can do this, do that. And now you're telling me you can't do something? And Chuck said he had to laugh. And he said, well, I didn't say I couldn't do it. I just said I hadn't really thought about it. And that's what prompted him to basically, you know, start his foray into the world of acting. And the rest is is history. And I thought, what a wonderful story, you know, but of Steve just lecturing about what a contradiction he was suddenly becoming, telling Steve that he couldn't do something when that's all Chuck had done. And you know what we're like as martial artists. We try and build confidence in people. You can achieve anything, blah, 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 through the arts. I thought that was a wonderful little story. Yeah, that's a cool one. I like that one. So, you know, I know, Richard, you also run your own group. You've got your own organization. You're a fifth-degree Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. If people want to find out about that side of you, what's, what's the best place to – where's the best place to go? What's the URL for that? There's two ways. They can absolutely messenger me on Facebook. Go figure, right? Social media. But they can find me on Facebook. Look, there's normal. There's, it's filled up with people and everything else and friends. But I can still always get messages uh, that anyone wants to contact me through that way. And or it's at um, richardnortonbjj.com, www.richardnortonbjj.com. That's my own little association. You know, we loosely call Team Norton Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So if they want to contact me through that or have any interest, um, welcome to do so. Um, look, it, it's, it, you know, the, it really was originally supposed to involve all sorts of stand-up and want to introduce even training for martial artists who want to get a career as stunt people or action actors in the film industry. You know, we're looking at setting up a seminar circuit to teach people how to put fights together and learn what it's like to be on a movie set, how to take hits, how to react and everything else. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a work in progress, Rodney. As you, I know you've got a, such an incredibly well-polished online platform for your crazy monkey, and I love it. I'm unfortunately a bit of a Neanderthal, so I depend on other people to try and do it for me. As you know, I've got Dr. George Adams in Sydney that sets a lot of it up for me, but 
the website we have, Richard Norton BJJ, you know, we've got clips and everything else. You can be a part of that if, uh, if you should choose to want to do so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's at all as what you said. I think it's fantastic. I think you, you guys are doing a fantastic job. And I mean, I, I got an opportunity to train out there with George and you came up, which I really appreciated. And you've got some really nice guys that are in your group. And that's what it's about. It's about just comradeship in in the arts and everything. Just share our knowledge. You, I know you have the same passion. You know we're we're similar like that. I mean, every time I teach a seminar of two hours, it goes four because I've got so much shit in my head that I want to get out, and I just love it. I enjoy the passion. I always said to people, all I wanted to do with my life was be the best martial artist I could be. Everything that's happened that's great in my life, like working as a bodyguard, traveling the world with rock and roll bands, a 40-year career in movies has all happened as a result of that that through line of wanting to be the best martial artist. And I thought, how great is that? And if I can in, help inspire people to achieve a similar sort of goal, then job well done. So it's it's been a great life. It still is many more years to come. Beautiful. I mean, I love that. But thanks, Richard. I really appreciate the time. I know you're a really busy man. And so it was fantastic chatting to you for this past hour. Very much. Thank you very much, Rodney. I appreciate the call. Thanks, my friend. To find out more about our sponsor, Crazy Monkey, go to crazymonkeydefense.com or to become a trainer, check out mastercrazymonkey.com. Until the next show, get out there and write hook life.